Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We are currently in our series, State of the Union. And we're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. One of the most beautiful things about Hope Church is that we are truly a multicultural fellowship. It's one of my favorite things about what God did when he birthed this church. i got to be honest, it's one of those things that was a total shock to me. I moved out here from the Bible Belt, a white kid from Alabama with two other white guys and their families from Tennessee and Alabama, and had no idea what God had in store for us when we moved here. And I mean, you couldn't have picked less likely guys to see a multicultural church like this be born. But it's who we are. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are one. And let me just tell you, that, that's always been powerful to say. But in light of what we're living in today in the context of our country, it is a powerful statement. I understand like never before where Jesus said, by this, all men are going to know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Because right now, apart from the gospel, you see, our love for one another is really unexplainable. There's so much that could and should, by society's standards, divide us. And yet, look around you. Here we are, one family. One family. That means that we have one father. We are one family because of the gospel. If you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're looking around you, and you're going, what in the world is it that unites this group of people together? Hey, we got one answer for you. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus says that all of us have sinned. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've come from, what you've done. Every one of us have sinned against God. We've all disobeyed God's laws. We've all broken God's commandment. And yet God loved us anyway, and he loved us so much that he sent his only son Jesus into the world. God became a human being, took on humanity, lived a sinless life, and Jesus died on a cross for your sin and my sin. He took all of our sin on himself, and he died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead as a testimony that God had accepted his sacrifice for our sin. And now you and I can be born again by faith into relationship with God. And every person in this room today who is a Christian has been born again through the same blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, the resurrection power of the gospel. Because of that today, we are one family. But we're also one body. We're one body. 
The scripture talks about in the book of Romans and in 1 Corinthians this idea that there are many members with different gifts and abilities, but we're one body, the body of Christ. Which means to Las Vegas, to our city around us, we as the body of Christ get to represent Jesus to our city. What a representation of the power of the gospel when you look at what's in this room. Amen? We're one church. We have one mission. That's who we are as a fellowship. And it's one of the things that to me is the most beautiful quality of who we are. And yet, I read a quote recently by a guy, I don't know him, a friend of mine said the quote, the pastor's name is Rich Viotis, he's a pastor in Brooklyn, New York, here's the quote that he said, pastoring a multi-ethnic church often means it's also multi-theological and multi-political, this makes it multi-difficult. Can I just be transparent? <laughs> Never have I felt this like I have the last six months. I'm just being honest. The last six months with what we've watched happen in society around us. I felt the weight of it because i watched people that I love feel the impact of what's happening around us from a lot of different perspectives. You see, I grew up in a situation where when I saw stuff like this happen in culture, everybody around me looked like I did, talked like I did, came from where I came from, looked at the things the way that I looked at them. So when we walked through stuff, we all kind of had the same perspective, so we were all able to go, yeah, we're all right. We, we all see this the same way. But I've watched you as a church family And I've watched us together walk through some things, and it's opened my eyes to see it in a very different light. Our nation has been and continues to convulse with pain, and much of it is centered on divisions of race and culture. I told you a few weeks ago when I first got back from vacation this summer, I told you in August, that I really believed what was happening was going to test our mettle as a multicultural fellowship, that it was going to challenge who we were as a church and and really cause us to ask some serious questions and really find out who we are as a fellowship. And I really believe that's what's happened. And out of a sense of burden, our pastors came together. We prayed and we talked about how do we, how do we respond to this? And our first idea was let's just let's take one weekend, let's preach a sermon on it, and, and that'll be enough. And the more we prayed about it and talked about it, we were like, there ain't no way we can deal with this in one weekend. And so we set out together for six weekends into a series that we've called State of the Union, When Culture and the Gospel Intersect. And for six weekends, we've been trying to lay down some biblical filters, a biblical worldview to help us as a church family come together and have some conversation, to help us dig deep using God's Word as the foundation that unites us. And I want to close this series this weekend by giving you one final biblical filter. We're going to unpack it, then we're going to look at where we go from here. Here's the filter. The church as a multicultural expression of the gospel is not a new thing. It's a New Testament thing. 
Now, for a lot of us here at Hope, you read that and go, okay, it's just who we are, right? But in North American missiology, when you study the church across North America, you got to understand multicultural church is a relatively new buzzword. If you've come to know Jesus at Hope and you've, you've been brought into this fellowship and this is just all you know of the church, just talk, just take a moment this week for Thanksgiving and just thank God this is all you know of the church. Because the reality is, and I've quoted just this to you a couple of weeks ago, 86% of the churches in North America are segregated by race or class. So this morning, while we're sitting here today, and we look like a bag of Skittles that's been poured out on a Sunday morning, most of the church in America, nine out of ten churches in America, don't look like this at all. But I want us to hear something today, and I want to drive this home because it's important as we move forward. The church, as a multicultural expression of the gospel, is not a new thing. It's a New Testament thing. And let me show it to you in a couple of ways. Number one... The New Testament church was multicultural when it began. Let me read it to you. Acts chapter 2. Look at these verses. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse number 8. Now, what we're about to read is what theologians and scholars would believe. This is the birth of the local church in the New Testament. It's when it began. Acts chapter 2. It says, and how is it? That we each hear them in our own language to which we were born. This is when the disciples got up on the day of Pentecost. They preached the gospel and all the people are hearing it in their language. And the people are saying, how's this happening? We're Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia. We're from Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. I think something that we've missed as we've read this in the early church, here's the gospel taking root in Jerusalem, the church being born, and on day one, 15 different geographic locations spanning from North Africa through the Middle East and all the way to Rome were represented, representing dozens of languages and dozens of cultures. When the church was born, it was multicultural the day it opened for business. It's not a new thing. It's a New Testament thing. And as the church began to expand throughout the New Testament, throughout the book of Acts, It continued this pattern of being multicultural. Let me show it to you in a couple of ways. Number one, we see it in the leadership in the New Testament church. In Acts chapter 6, in Acts chapter 6, we read about the very first conflict the church ever had. You know what it was? It was a cultural conflict. The Hellenistic believers and the Jewish believers were at odds with one another because they felt like one culture was being showed favoritism over another culture. So you had these cultures that had come together. 
There were some of them that that felt like they were being mistreated. And in Acts chapter 6, they addressed that with leadership. And in Acts 6, the way they addressed it was predominantly at this point, you had a Jewish faction of leadership. Well, what they did is they added seven men to the leadership team that were all Hellenists. And they gave this multicultural expression of leadership to address this rapidly growing multicultural fellowship. As you continue to read through the book of Acts, you get to Acts chapter 13, We see multicultural leadership in the most dynamic church in the New Testament. Anybody know what the most dynamic church in the book of Acts was? You know where it was located? Anybody got a guess? Everybody's nervous. Nobody wants to say the wrong answer. It was in the church at Antioch. Antioch, the Bible tells us, is the first church where they called people Christians. It was the church where Paul was discipled for two years. It was the church where Paul and Barnabas were sent out on missionary journeys. Almost every church that was planted through the book of Acts was planted out of the sending ministry of the church at Antioch. So look at Acts chapter 13 verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. He's about to describe the leadership team of the church at Antioch. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Look at that list. Two were from Africa. One was from the Mediterranean. One was from the Middle East. One was from Asia Minor. Here's the strongest most powerful, most impactful church in the New Testament that was sending missionaries out of its church. And from the very beginning, the leadership reflected this church. And it was a multicultural fellowship. We don't just see it in the leadership. We see it in the letters written to the New Testament church. In Acts chapter 6, we read this story of this cultural conflict. Well, that wasn't the only time this happened. Over and over and over again, the church experienced cultural conflict. And if you read the letters of the New Testament from the book of Romans all the way through to the end, you will find letter after letter after letter that is addressing or referencing conflict that was happening in the church because of cultural situations. Let me give you some examples. Romans 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, James, and 1 Peter. Ten of the letters in the New Testament, all in the context of the letter, was addressing an issue of multicultural fellowship. How are we dealing with these issues of culture, different people coming together? It's not a new thing. It's a New Testament thing. We also see it in the mission given to the church. Jesus gave the Great Commission. He said, go in Matthew 28, therefore, and make disciples of what? All the what? The word nations is the Greek word ethnos. We get our English word ethnicity from it. It's a word that describes people that are united by kinship, culture, and common traditions and languages. We know it today as the term people group. Here's what the Great Commission teaches us. From the very beginning... It is impossible to accomplish the mission given to the church. It is impossible to accomplish the mission without crossing cultural barriers. If we stay within our own culture, you cannot, we as the church cannot obediently fulfill the mission of Jesus if we don't get outside of our own culture. 
Derwin Gray said it this way. The church is not a weekend destination, but a blood-bought, multicolored people. That's the church. And we must see it that way. So let me give you the filter again. Here's the filter. The church as a multicultural expression of the gospel is not a new thing. It's a New Testament thing. This should be who we are as the church. Here's what this means for every church. Now, this question that I'm asking today is not really for you and me. I'm asking it because we have a lot of people that listen in and they'll watch this message online. And especially during this series, we've had a lot of people listening in and following us online. But here's a question every church ought to wrestle with. If our church does not reflect our community, what aspect of the reconciling power of the gospel are we missing? If our church doesn't reflect our community, what aspect of the reconciling power of the gospel are we missing? Then here's the question we're forced to ask. How is it that 86% of the churches in America don't get this? How is it that 9 out of 10 churches in the United States, if you walked in their doors today, it'd be predominantly white, predominantly black, predominantly Latino, predominantly Filipino, whatever you want to call it. But 9 out of 10 churches, that's what you would find. Let me tell you what the answer to the question is. The natural tendency of our flesh is to gravitate towards that which is most like us. So here's what that means. The makeup of the local church in America is more a reflection of our flesh than our mission. And I believe that's why America, North America, is one of only two continents in the world where Christianity is on the decline. North America and Europe are the only two continents in the world where Christianity is not growing, it's declining. I think part of that is an indictment against the church that we have rallied ourselves together around our flesh rather than the mission that God's given us. Now, because we've drifted so far from the New Testament. Well, the reason I'm sharing this with you today is I want you to understand that when you see the church in North America, we think that we're the ones that ought to be telling the rest of the world how to do this. But here's the indictment against the church in North America. We have drifted so far from who we were in the New Testament. And because we've drifted so far, here's what I want you to hear me say. I realize six sermons ain't going to fix it. So I don't want you to think that we came up with six sermons because we thought, you know, these six sermons, we can do this, and then our church will just be past this, and we won't ever have to talk about this again, and we're going to all be in unity, we're going to all be rowing the boat together, and we're going to all be good and singing kumbaya, and everybody's going to have the same perspective. No, that's not the case. But here's my prayer, my burden as your pastor through this series is that with this series, we've built a table. 
table that we can all get around together. And we can all sit down around the table. What's the table? It's a biblical filter. It's a biblical worldview. That we now have a table that we can sit around together in community and have conversations about our cultural differences with a shared biblical worldview. And knowing that at the end of the conversation, we love each other. And we are one family. I'm not naive to think that we can preach six sermons and we're all okay. But here's what I believe. We will only move forward. We will only move forward and get our questions answered. I know a lot of us, we still got a lot of unanswered questions concerning some of this stuff. I get it. But we're only going to move forward and get our questions answered as we talk to the Lord and as we talk to each other In community, we cannot let the muck of history define us. We must allow the gospel to change us. If we are ever going to move forward, we can no longer be defined by our past. As cultures coming together, we must allow the gospel to change us. And as your pastor, i got to be honest, I am extremely encouraged. I'm encouraged today because I've been hearing from some of you about the conversations that you've been having in your small groups. I've been hearing via email, text, phone call, running by me, bumping into me at the church or at the store. I've been hearing from you about the conversations. And I know that some of the conversations have been uncomfortable. I know some of the conversations have been, in, have been tense. But here's what I want you to hear me say. At least you're having the conversation. We're talking about it. Listen, we're never going to move forward if we don't talk to the Lord and talk to each other. As brothers and sisters in Christ, one family sitting around a table. That's why I'm I'm sitting down today to talk to you. Normally I don't do this. But I wanted to to give you a picture of what it's going to take for us moving forward. We're going to have to come together and sit down around some tables. And be able to ask each other some questions, answer those questions, move forward together as a body of Christ. When we began together, we asked the first question. The first question we asked was, who am I? Remember week one? Who am I? It's a question that speaks to identity. I wanted us to wrestle with the question, who am I? Am I I black? Am I white? Am I brown? Am I Republican? Am I Democrat? Am I independent? Am I American? Am I non-American? You see, all of these things identify some things about us, but they don't define us. I gave you a filter in week one that defines us. I want to put it back up on the screen. I'm going to make you read it one more time. Let's read it together. 
above all else. Who I am is who I am in Christ. That is what defines us. There are some other things that tell you some stuff about us, but there's only one thing that defines us, and that is who we are in Christ. Here's what that means. Because of Jesus, there is infinitely more that unites us than divides us. So then I want to deal with the last question today. How do we pursue biblical community in the context of diversity? How do we keep the conversation going as we move forward in a way that's healthy, productive, and allows us to grow together in Christ and with one another's brothers and sisters in Christ? Because if you hadn't figured it out since the election, it's not over. There's still some stuff brewing in our culture. And can I just tell you, it's never going to be over. And let me tell you why. Because what we're dealing with is not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. And until Jesus comes back, that's going to be with us. Now, here's the good news. When he comes back, (laughs) it's gone. We get to be the kingdom of God for all eternity together. And guess what? We don't have to deal with this. Call it whatever you want to anymore. We don't have to deal with it anymore. It's over. But for now, we're going to have to deal with it. Which means you and I are going to have to be loving and gracious and honest and compassionate with one another. So I want to take you to a passage of Scripture. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is one of the letters where Paul is addressing this idea of community. He's addressing this idea of multicultural community. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, at the end of the letter, beginning in verse 12. I want to read three verses, then, then share a couple of things with you, and we're done. Here's the first, first verse. He said, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. Now, He started with, we request you. Now he's intensifying the argument a little bit. Verse 14, we urge you, brethren. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, (laughs) be patient with everybody. That's how we move forward. So let me give it to you in a couple of statements. Number one, and I'm not going to spend much time on this one, but I needed to mention it this morning, especially after these six weeks. Number one, love your leaders. <laughs> um, I just want you to know that this series has been as tough on your pastors preaching it as it has been on you hearing it. I know it's stretched some of you. Um. I know it's pushed on some areas in all of our lives. But I don't want you to think that's been a one-way deal. It's pushed on us hard. It's kept me up preparing these messages every week. 
The scripture here says that as leaders, we have charge, which means we, we have leadership responsibilities to do something. He said to give instruction. That phrase, give instruction, literally means to confront with the truth. Here's what it means. As pastors, we have a biblical responsibility to lead this fellowship by opening up the truth of God's word and confronting us with the truth. And sometimes it's hard. But listen, if we don't do it as pastors, we don't love you. I challenge you, don't ever sit in a church for any length of time where you're not challenged and confronted with the word of God. If you ever feel like at hope you're not being challenged and confronted by the Word of God, then you need to go somewhere else where you are. Because we have a biblical responsibility as pastors to challenge and confront us with the Word of God. I know that there are a lot of churches that you could attend, and they would never talk about some of the things that we have talked about over the last six weekends. But here's the deep conviction we had. We don't do this. We don't love you. We had a responsibility, and here's what I honestly believe. I believe that we have shepherded our church through a very difficult season in such a way that we are now a stronger, better fellowship for what we've walked through. So here's all I'm asking you to do. Just love us. Just love us. You may not be happy with some of the things over the last six weeks, but just love us anyway. Love your leaders. Now I want to finish by talking about the other side of this. Number two, live in peace with one another. It's what Paul writes this church and challenges them with. He says, live in peace with one another. That little phrase, live in peace, you know what it literally means in the Greek language? It's the word that means to reconcile. It means to keep the peace. And Paul didn't just casually say it. It's an imperative, meaning it's a command. He's commanding this church to pursue reconciling relationships with each other. He's challenging them to pursue keeping the peace with one another. But if the, if the command wasn't enough, he says, I'm urging you to do this. It's a word that means to beg, to exhort, to urge strongly. Paul's writing to this church that's experiencing some, some, some problems, some challenges because there are cultural differences. And he says, hey, as an apostle, I'm challenging you. I'm exhorting you. I'm urging you to do everything you can to constantly pursue reconciliation with one another. Paul wrote it again in the book of Ephesians. That's how he wrote it in Ephesians chapter 4. He said, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That phrase, be diligent, in the Greek language literally means to do whatever you got to do. How about that, church? What if from this point forward, hey, whatever you got to do, to pursue peace and right relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's what Paul says, do it. Do it. And if the command wasn't enough, he then unpacks it in verse 15. And this is where I, or 14, this is where I want to spend our time today. Paul gives us four imperatives in verse 14. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. All four of those are commands. 
It's just like Paul went boom, 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 boom. It's four commands, but get this. They're, they're commands that describe an ongoing way of life. They're not to be done and over. They're present active in their construction, meaning that it's describing the way you and I live together. As brothers and sisters in Christ, these four things should characterize the ongoing relationship that we enjoy with one another. So I want to give them to you in four statements. Here's the first one. Sometimes we need to challenge one another's thinking. If you and I are going to pursue peace, if we're going to reconcile relationships, sometimes we have to challenge one another's thinking. That's what the word admonish means. The word admonish, when he says admonish the unruly, the word admonish is two words put together. The two words that are put together are the word the mind and to place. Literally, it means to put in somebody's mind, to place into their mind. It's communicating this idea of challenging the way somebody is thinking. If you and I are going to be brothers and sisters in Christ, we can't sweep stuff under a rug. We can't ignore it and pretend like it doesn't happen. We can't just walk in there and hold hands on Sunday and try to pray that it never comes up. As brothers and sisters in Christ, there are times that we have to challenge one another's thinking. It's really what we've been trying to do with this series. We've been trying from every perspective to challenge our thinking, and I hope that's what's happened. Because here's what we do as Christians. As Christians, we unite together around God's Word. Amen? If you you unite with us around the Bible as the absolute truth of God's Word, say amen. We find unity around the Bible, but then here's what happens. We begin to develop personal convictions based on the truth of the Bible, and we allow our personal convictions to divide us around, instead of the Word of God, uniting us. And that's this idea of admonish the unruly. The unruly, it's someone who's going their own way. It's someone, for example, who's taken their convictions and elevated them to a place where they're just doing their own thing. They're no longer submitting to the Word of God. They've decided for themselves, this is the way I'm going to apply the Bible in my life. This is what it means to me. That's a dangerous question. Don't ever ask that in your small group. What does this mean to you? Listen, with the Bible, it doesn't matter what it means to you. What matters is what does it mean? Then the me part of it's just got to come into conformity with what it means. As we pursue right relationships with one another, there'll be times we need to challenge one another's convictions in in this area of challenging our thinking. Now, in doing so, don't miss this. We need to do it without being offensive. Okay, this is not permission for you to walk around with a hammer cocked back all the time, all right? Looking for an opportunity to pop somebody in the nose with truth. We're to do it in love. But here's the other side of that. We're also to receive it without taking offense. Stop being so sensitive. It's okay when my brother and sister in Christ challenges my thinking. I don't necessarily have to agree with it. But I don't have to be offended that they care enough to share their perspective with me. We can hear one another... And listen, and listen, sometimes we're much better for it. I'll give you an example. This is, this is a little bit, this will be hard for some of you to grasp because you didn't grow up in this culture. But I, in the Bible Belt where I grew up, man, we own this thing of taking truth and developing convictions and then elevating convictions to the level of non-negotiable truth. Where I come from, that's my people's thing. That's what we do. For example, I grew up in a church culture where we had this thing on Monday nights called Monday Night Visitation. 
in our church every Monday night, all the people that were really saved and loved Jesus, that's the way we understood it, because if you were really saved and loved Jesus, you'd be there on Monday night. On Monday night, we would all come to the church, and then we would go out and visit people who had visited us at church and call that outreach. What's funny is that's not outreach, that's inreach. That's visiting people that visited us. But we called it outreach. And I mean, it was the law of the Medes and the Persians in our church. You couldn't lead anything. You couldn't even be considered for leading. If you didn't come on Monday night visitation outreach every Monday night, it didn't matter if you were having a heart transplant on Tuesday morning. You had to be there on Monday night outreach. I was in leadership in this church, so, man, I put it on all my leaders. You got to be there on Monday night outreach. That's what I was supposed to do. Then I had this guy in my ministry who was a football coach. And he coached football. He couldn't come on Monday night, so we couldn't let him lead because he couldn't come on Monday night. But I watched him. Every Sunday, that joker was bringing somebody to Jesus that he led to Christ coaching football. And you know what it did? It challenged my thinking. So much so that when I came to Las Vegas to plant this church, guess what? We didn't have Monday night outreach. We didn't have nobody visiting us. It was just me and my wife and children. So you know what I did? I started coaching Little League Baseball. I had some boys who wanted to play baseball. I started coaching Little League Baseball. The first several families I led to Christ in our church, I led to Christ coaching Little League Baseball. Listen, we taught a whole bunch of people in the church I grew up in that you weren't spiritual because you coached Little League Baseball. Sometimes we got to challenge one another's thinking. Listen, we all have some perspectives about some stuff, but we need to challenge one another's thinking as we live in community together. That's going to be part of it. Here, here's the second thing. Sometimes we need to encourage one another with words. He said, secondly, not only to admonish the unruly, he said, encourage the faint-hearted. The word encourage, again, it's a compound word. It, 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 it's this idea of to come alongside and to speak. I'm to come alongside you and I'm to speak into your life in a way that lifts you up. It encourages. He says the faint-hearted. Faint-hearted is a word that means discouraged, huddled together and afraid. Now, I like what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, these are people that are always looking to the dark side of things and ready to give up. They're discouraged. This is very different than challenging somebody's thinking. This is somebody who's discouraged, and you're just coming up and speaking life into them. I had this happen to me this week. I, I, this six-week series has been an emotional roller coaster for me. I, I get an email, and somebody's telling me about how God is using this series to challenge their thinking and, and help them process some things. In there. And then I'll get another email that's not so encouraging. You know, somebody that's, that's combative and struggling and, and wrestling. and It's just been an emotional roller coaster. I'll hear about one conversation in a small group that was awesome and another conversation in a small group that was like World War III kind of stuff. And I was sitting with some of our pastors this week. One of our pastors in particular was there with me, Pastor Stan Harvey. I don't know if Stan, Stan, you in the room still? Stan's over here somewhere. 
I heard him over here, I think. Stan's over here. I was sitting in the room with Stan. I looked at, and I, let me just tell you, um, our church is blessed to have Pastor Stan Harvey. If you don't know Stan, God has used that man in my life during this series to just give me, God has done so much in his heart through the power of the gospel to give insight into the things we've been talking about. Listen, if you're struggling to get some of this stuff, schedule you a lunch with Stan Harvey. Sorry, Stan, you're going to be busy, but I'm just telling you. He'll help you think through some of this stuff. And I, we were sitting in the room, we were talking, and I, I said this out of my mouth. I said, oh, do you think it's really even possible for us to experience the kind of multicultural fellowship and unity we've been talking about for six weeks? I was just at one of those places I was discouraged. You think it's even possible? Stan looked at me. He said, Pastor, we already are. He said, maybe not on the macro level like you want to see it, but on the micro level in pockets all over this fellowship, there is a unity and a oneness and a coming together and a dying to self. You know what he did? He flat encouraged me. I was ready to preach this week now. But as we grow together in it, listen, there are going to be times that God's going to use you to speak words into somebody's life. It's just going to encourage them. Here's the third one. Sometimes we just need to be there for one another. The third phrase, he said, help the weak. The word help, it's a Greek word that literally means to hold on to somebody. It means to be devoted to. It's a very relational term. I love what John Stott said about it. He said it means to hold on to them, to cling to them, to put your arm around them. This isn't about talking to them. It's not about challenging their thinking. It's not about speaking words into their life. You know what this is about? It's just about hanging on to them. And he calls them, this group, the weak. The word weak is a word that means literally without strength. It's somebody who's struggling There are going to be times in the body of Christ that every one of us struggle. And if you think you're above that, hang on, your struggle is coming. We are going to struggle. As the senior pastor of a large church, honest as I can be, I struggle. I struggle with stuff. You're going to struggle with stuff. We're all going to struggle with stuff. There are going to be times we struggle with issues of identity. There are going to be times we forget that who we are is who we are in Christ. And we start letting our identity get wrapped up in some political ideology or a job that we have or a relationship that we're pursuing. There are going to be times we struggle. There are going to be times that we hurt. Listen, being a Christian doesn't make us immune from pain and hurt. There are going to be times we're going to see some stuff on the news. We're going to hear something from some politician. We're going to see something in the world of sports. We're going, to, we're going to have some testimony out there, and it's going to hurt. Maybe because of the culture that you come from or the background that you've had or a shared experience, there's going to be some times that we hurt and we're struggling. And in those moments, what Paul is saying, it's not time for you to lead a Bible study for them. It's not time for us to sit down and tell them what the Greek means. 
It's not time for us to tell them how God's grown us in that area. Here's what it's time to do. Put your arm around them and just be there. Just be there. Just be there. You know what I found in times that I've hurt? I don't remember what people said, but I remember who was there. I don't remember what they said, but I I remember who was there. Paul says sometimes we just got to be there. Last week at church, last week I saw someone in our fellowship, and I knew the news of the week had just rocked them. You could see it. It was all over their face. So I just went up to them, and I just put my arm around them. You're not alone. It's going to be okay. Just put my arm around them. Didn't quote any Bible verses. Just put my arm around them. They sent me a note this week just said, thank you. Thank you. Sometimes we just need to be there for one another. Here's the last one. We're done. Always, we need to be patient <coughs> with one another. Sometimes you need to challenge one another singing. Not all the time. Okay? Some of you think that's your spiritual gift. It's not. <laughs> Sometimes we need to challenge one another singing. Sometimes we need to encourage each other. Not all the time. Sometimes we need to be there. Not all the time. But always. We need to be patient with one another. The word patient is a word that means exercising understanding towards people. There are two words in the Greek language. One is patient with people. The other is patient with things. This is the word to be patient with people. He's talking about relational patience. It means to bear up under the provocation of another without complaint. It means this, you just go, and you just take it. One writer said this, it's the quality of a person who has the ability to avenge himself, yet refrains from doing so. And I love the way he said it, be patient with everyone. It's the Greek word for each one. It literally means be patient with them all. Here's why I said it that way. Because some are easier to be patient with than others. I don't want to make eye contact with anybody right now. <laughs> but some are easier to be patient with than others. You know what I'm talking about. You, you're in a small group. Some are easier to be patient with than others. But we don't get to choose the ones we want to be patient with and the ones we don't. He said, Christ in you is calling you to be patient with them all. John Stott said this, We have no excuse for becoming impatient with them on the ground that they are difficult, demanding, disappointing, argumentative, or rude. Anybody know anybody like that? Don't say amen. On the contrary, we are to be patient with all of them since God has been 
infinitely patient with us. How we go forward from here? We live in peace with one another. We do everything we can to pursue peace. Sometimes we've got to challenge one another's thinking. Sometimes we've got to speak words of encouragement. Sometimes we've got to be there. And always, let's be patient. Let's pray. Father, we ask you this morning to take your word and speak truth into our lives. Lord, have your way among us today. This morning, as you sit there in a spirit of prayer, in just a moment, our worship team is going to lead us. We're going to stand and sing a song of worship. It's an opportunity for us not to slip out early, but as the body of Christ to worship together in response to the word. Maybe today you're here and you're like one of those I talked about early. You're, you're not a Christian. You don't know Jesus. But listen, it's the power of the gospel that gives us the ability to love one another and reconcile relationships together. I want to invite you today. If you're not a follower of Jesus but you want to be, we're going to have some pastors up here at the front. When we sing this song, I want to invite you to just come to one of these pastors at the front. Simply say, I need Jesus. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and open a Bible and show you how you can begin a personal relationship with God. For others of you today, you already know Jesus. Maybe God's just convicted your heart. Maybe there's somebody in this room you need to go to and pray with them or encourage them or just put your arm around them. Maybe you want to just come get in one of these altars, just be alone with God for a few moments. Just, just cry out to God. These altars are open. You can come. Maybe you just feel led to come on behalf of our church, get in one of these altars and just beg God to do this in our church. May we see a radical reconciled community like we've never experienced before. Maybe today you've got something on your heart, your job, your health, your passion. Maybe there's something in your relationships. Maybe there's an area in your finances and you just need a pastor to pray over you. Our pastors are here. We'd be honored to pray over you. You just come to one of them today. We'll pray with you. For the rest of us, let's respond in worship as we worship this God that's made us one family. Lord, have your way in this moment. Speak to us. Use us for your glory. Holy Spirit of God, we invite you right now to move among us. God, would you bring conviction? Lord, where we've not been practicing these things, would you bring conviction? And I pray today, all over this fellowship, there would be a spirit of genuine repentance where we drag out into the light and confess to you where we've not been living these things out. And we would embrace your forgiveness. And God, we would move forward in pursuing reconciling relationships with others. Lord, your gospel is a gospel of reconciliation. Thank you for what you're doing in our church. God, take us deeper. Take us deeper. We worship you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.